You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Today's guest is Mark Fleming. So I'm really excited about this. Mark had founded Signature Closers, which was acquired by Stewart Capital in February of 2021, where he resides as the Senior Operations Director. And now Mark's got his hands in all kinds of stuff. Mark's an angel investor. He's a co-founder of a company called Talent Share and the managing partner at MEMM Capital. Mark, I don't think that there's anything that you're not doing right now, which is exciting. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Callan. I appreciate it. Yeah. In, in your own words, tell us what you're up to right now. To your point, a little bit of everything. So um, in February of 2021, our company, Signature Closers, was acquired by Stuart Title. Um, and that was quite interesting learning experience. You know, Fortune 800 company publicly traded. So the due diligence process alone, I learned so much through that, that you know I'm still applying today. But I'm working there in, I would say, more of a strategic kind of sales role where I am helping to kind of bring together our technology and our systems underneath the broader umbrella of, you know, this kind of gorilla company. So, you know, we're this little fish and, you know, they're this huge company. And so we're trying to trying to marry the two there. I'm involved in strategy, helping to build out some of our e-closing solutions there, kind of keeping our team on the right trajectory. And then outside of that, I did co-found a company called Talent Share. Uh, it's a startup. You know, very interesting idea. I think we're connecting collegiate athletes to youth athletes, and we're doing that through a marketplace or an app right now for lessons and for coaching. And you know, I'm pretty passionate about that. And you know, it was funny that business actually was created. I was having coffee with a friend that actually is an entrepreneur as well. His name is Dan Delucia. He was the pitching coach at the time at Ohio State, and we were just we were kind of going back and forth on NIL and what that means and you know, seeing that there's a lot of big deals out there for football and men's basketball players primarily, and that a lot of other athletes aren't really getting that opportunity. And Dan mentioned to me that he had a pitcher that was all Big Ten that was busing tables for like $15 an hour at a local country club. And he had said to that pitcher, like, hey, you ought to think about teaching lessons. You know, when I was in school, I was able to make, you know, a couple hundred bucks an hour, get four or five kids, you know, charge them 40 or 50 bucks and teach them to pitch. And, you know, this student athlete had really no idea where to start. He's like, that sounds great. I'd love to make $200 an hour, right? Versus 15. <laughs> but where do I market myself? How do I find parents? Um, and this is an all Big Ten pitcher. So, you know, we're not talking about somebody who just is, you know, like a random person. I mean, they're, they're a great player uh, at a pretty big university. And so that sort of was the motivation behind Talent Share that. And then I have two daughters that participate in sports that, you know, lacrosse, swimming, field hockey, um, sports that maybe aren't seeing as much exposure as some of the other sports. And so this is just our little way of bringing opportunity uh, to those sports. So, you know, hopefully that'll be something that we continue to see grow. And we partnered with a guy named Justin Inacio. He is a uh, former Ohio State lacrosse player. He's now a professional lacrosse player. So he's on our team, which is really exciting. Yeah, so that that's a big piece of something that I guess I'm working on. And then on the other, the other thing you mentioned is MEMM Capital. And I am working on essentially, right now I'm under LOI with an organization that I'm looking to bring under kind of my umbrella, almost called a holding company, where I can sort of oversee and be involved in the business strategically, invest in the business, you know, almost like a chairman type role, I guess, is the best way to describe it. But my goal would be to build out a portfolio of a handful of those companies that are in industries or things that I understand well and can add value to, 
and then really partner with good operators and leadership teams to kind of build that out. So that's, yeah, it's about what's on my plate right now, what I've been working on. No shortage of things to do for sure. So you got all sorts of cool things going on right now. When I've looked this up and I've heard you kind of talk about this a little bit before, but you said you're an accidental entrepreneur. What does that mean? Where did that come from? Where did this all start? That's a great question. You know, actually, I was on a podcast last week and I was sort of accidentally on that podcast by myself. Justin, who, you know, I just mentioned from Ohio State, professional lacrosse player, he set us up to go on the Shrimp Tank podcast uh, here locally in Columbus to talk a little bit about talent share. And that morning, you know, I, I texted him, hey, I'm running a few minutes behind. And he called me and I missed his call because I was like trying to get out the door. And so he texted me back, hey, I'm really sick, can't make it. I'm like, oh, geez, he set this up. Am I supposed to go in or not? So I went in anyways. <laughs> and, you know, they asked a little bit about the start of where Signature Closer started. And that's sort of really when I came up with the phrase just last week of, you know, I was kind of an accidental entrepreneur. Like it wasn't like I sat down one day and said, okay, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to start this company and I'm going to raise capital or I'm going to put my own money in. And then just knowingly going into that journey, it was one of those things where, you know, it's kind of a, a long story. I'll try to make short, but I was in college. Real quick. What did you want to do? Well, you know, I didn't know. I mean, I was what, 21, 22 years old. I started Signature when I was going into my senior year at Miami. And I tell people I kind of majored sort of accidentally as well. I liked uh, real estate and I liked law and I still do. And so I was able to take those courses underneath my finance major at Miami University in Oxford, down in Ohio, or Oxford, Ohio. And that's why I went the route of finance. It wasn't really like I thought, oh, I want to be an investment banking or work for some big company. That wasn't really on my radar. It was like, oh, I like finance. I like, or I like, I'm sorry, real estate. And I like law classes and I can use that towards my major. Sounds good. So to answer your original question, I don't know. I, you know, I really wasn't sure probably at that age what I wanted to do. I did grow up uh, in an entrepreneurial family. My dad had some experience in real estate and had bought and sold houses and had rental properties. And so I I'd seen that and seen some of the flexibility, but also some of the challenges in that world. And, you know, I, I know like looking back, my parents tell me stories that, you know, they, they talk a lot about like the sucker sales in school or just different things that were going on that, you know, I would broker deals or sell certain, you know, buy from people and sell certain things. And so I definitely had an entrepreneurial, I guess, spirit, if you want to call it that, but I never really had the intention going in to just sort of start this business. So it's kind of, funny how it played out. And that's, that's why I consider myself an accidental entrepreneur. It is interesting, right? I definitely wanted to start a business, but I didn't, I didn't know even where, where to go with that. So that's, that's interesting. And what I find so funny about that is that you didn't want to, but you founded a company in college, which is not a normal thing. What led to you to that founding of that company? So, you know, it initially started as a summer job. I was going into this, my summer my, before my senior year, and I was looking at internships, you know, in the financial world. And so primarily I was looking at like Ameriprise Financial, Northwestern Mutual, companies that were unpaid internships and, and nothing wrong with that. I think, you know, you can learn a lot. There is definitely a part of me. I mean, I'm very entrepreneurial now, very entrepreneurial minded, but I do think that having a couple of years of experience right out of school in a business, especially a startup or a small company, is really helpful in terms of creating your own business. Because, you know, my advice to a lot of those people that are graduating that are looking to start businesses, you know, there may be some that are qualified that can jump right in if they surround themselves with the right people. But, you know, kind of a, a digression here. But I do think that having a couple years of experience or working within an organization where you're seeing and doing a lot of things before starting a business can be helpful. So. 
you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, back to the internship, same thing. I think looking at those internships, it was. Do you mind diving into that? So if you're the advice on going to what, in your words, how does that prepare somebody for starting a business at some point? Well, I think when you're starting a business, especially if it's a small company, you're doing so many different things. You're wearing so many different hats that, you know, like I look at my own experience and, you know, with Signature being sort of a side business is what I call it, kind of an accidental business. It was a side business for me for about four or five years. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But, you know, I was working in business in general. I had a finance degree. So even though it wasn't my intention to really understand finance like I did, Miami is a great university, a great business school. So I came in with a pretty solid foundation, financial foundation from that. And, you know, when you're running a business, though, you not, not only do I need to understand the numbers and the finance, but, you know, there's marketing, there's sales, there's operations, there's maybe tech, human resources once you get large enough. So I think if you're in a small company and you get to wear a number of different hats, it gives you an opportunity, I think, to kind of see all of that and how it works, learn and then grow and, and be able to jump off and do your own thing versus, you know, again, nothing wrong with working at a big company, but you would ask like, what did I want to do? I started at Cardinal Health early in my career. That was right out of school where I went. And, you know, I was like entering test scripts and helping implement SAP across the company, you know, myself and probably thousands of other people. And it just wasn't very interesting. I didn't really learn a whole lot. Um, and I know that, you know, sometimes you have to kind of cut your teeth, so to speak, depending on what you're getting into. But I knew that wasn't a career path I wanted to go down. And I do think that there are people that, you know, coming out of school would be better served to be with small businesses. But oftentimes, you know, universities like to see, well, hey, you know, we had this many graduates go to a Fortune 20 company. So, you know, in Miami, I think at that time, they've become a lot more open-minded to entrepreneurship and they even have a program. They're actually one of the better programs in the country now at that. Ohio State has that as well. You know, but during the time I was at Miami, I graduated in December of 06. I, you know, it was definitely like, okay, I'm looking at the job fairs at the Chase, Cardinal Health, Fifth Third, key banks of the world. I wasn't really so much looking or talking to smaller companies. And I think, you know, I probably missed out. Obviously, it worked out for me, but I think I missed out on, you know, potential opportunities of companies that are out there that I didn't know existed. And I don't think, you know, at that point, anyways, the universities were doing us any favors and steering us in that direction or saying, hey, you might actually be better suited to work in a small company. It was, you know, hey, we want to see that we had a million graduates that, you know, got jobs with Fortune 500 companies. And that's that's what they like to tell. So it's very true. I was the same exact way. You know, for us, it was the, the I went to Ohio State. So in Ohio State, it was the big companies. A lot of them that were in the backyard here in, in Columbus. So you got limited brands nationwide. Chase has a huge presence here and a number of others, but it was, I, and I was a finance major, funny enough as well, in um, the Fisher School of Business. It just started even having kind of electives around entrepreneurship. So I got lucky in that I couldn't get a job in corporate finance. I tried to get a job in corporate finance <laughs> and could not get hired, which is how I fell into the Northwestern Mutual internship, which I was fortunate that was very entrepreneurial. That was a very entrepreneurial role. So anyway, you're at Cardinal. And so you're experiencing this big, this big company, realizing that it's not for you, but you're still at this point also have this business on the side. Is that correct? Yeah. So in, in college, um, to kind of bring this story full circle, I looked at those internships and much to your point, like, you know, Northwestern probably would have been where I ended up as well. And you know, their reputation, I think, still is pretty strong in terms of training. And, and, you know, so there was definitely some value, I think, in going that route. 
But at the time, my dad was like, you know, why don't you think about becoming a notary? I have connections to title companies. You can make, you know, maybe a hundred dollars a closing. And that sounded pretty good versus I paid. So I thought, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll take that opportunity. And so I did, I became a notary and started out doing closings in the middle of nowhere. You know, Hey, there's a farmhouse 20 miles outside of Oxford at 9 PM. You know, I would, I would do that closing because no one else wanted to. And so through that, I built, I think a reputation of somebody who was willing to work hard, you know, being a young guy like that um, in this industry and went to work for Cardinal. And I was like, all right, I'm done. That's cool. Got my notary, had a cool summer job. And I'd met someone though, that had a network of notaries around Ohio where they would sort of like feed each other deals back and forth, kind of refer those they couldn't cover. And, you know, at that point, my dad was like, well, you know, think about maybe having a side business where you have somebody that is sort of running that for you, you know, day to day, essentially, they get the incoming orders because you built these relationships. And if they're a notary, they get first dibs and maybe there's some type of revenue share or some type of commission that you get based on, you know, feeding them that business. And if they schedule one of these other 10 people then you make something and you guys split it and, you know, a little bit of creative um, thinking. And so I thought, okay, what, why not? And so around that time, I had found a partner that being young and naive, like I was eventually had to kind of go a different direction. She went direct to one of my clients and suddenly I'm like, man, we were doing 30 deals a month with this company and now I'm getting zero. So I called them and they're like, and I won't say her name, but she went, um, and went direct, they're like, oh yeah, you know, this person went direct to us. And, you know, we've been sending her the invoices and the orders and God, geez. So, <laughs> so at that point, you know, my mother-in-law actually jumped into the business and she ran the day-to-day for a number of years. So that was sort of our path. You know, I kind of defined the timeline as, you know, BC and AD. I joke about before Chris and then AD is after development. You know, my mother-in-law, Jennifer Case was really running the business day-to-day in the background as I'm at Cardinal Actually, funny enough, my next job, I ended up moving into the employee benefits world, which which I was there for about four years, probably roughly. And I found that job because I did a closing during my lunch break when I was at Cardinal at a company that was in that space. And I'm like, oh, you know, this looks interesting. Their office is cool. They'd suggested like, oh, yeah, you know, we'd be interested in hiring you. You know, do you want to work here? And, you know, one thing led to another. I ended up taking a job there, moved into another company shortly thereafter. (laughs) There's some interesting stuff going on at that original company. So I moved on pretty quickly from there. But I did, you know, end up spending a lot of time in the employee benefits world, you know, and so kind of back to my earlier comment about starting a business and having exposure and experience, I became an expert, I would say, in the employee benefit space, the insurance space, where people in our office were coming to me for COBRA, Medicare, you know, you name it. And I was dealing pretty regularly with an ERISA attorney, one of the best from Boris, Linda Mendel. So it, it was great. I learned so much, kind of took it all in as a sponge. And then, when, you know, as this business on the side for me, eventually became a full-time business. I had experience in a number of different areas where I could step in and sort of run it as a full-time business. So, you know, was at Cardinal, had employee benefit background, and then made the leap. We, we looked at maybe move to Cincinnati. So I was working for a software company down in Cincinnati. And that's when I met Chris, uh, who's my technical co-founder, Chris Chapman, uh, down in Cincinnati. We were at the same company. So that's sort of the backstory leading up to when I jumped full-time with Signature. One of the things that I find personally interesting is, and I've, you know, I've seen this so many times, is that if you look at it now, right, you're a young guy, you had a great exit of the of the company, you can easily be put in the category of an overnight success. But when you look at this, and it's, I see this, it's, it's always kind of goes this way in my eyes. It's like, you don't, 
it this was a steady progression over a number of years with setbacks, with changes, with but it isn't just this giant hockey stick. Doesn't I mean that can't come later. Just from what I'm hearing it, that is that is that accurate? Am I am I hearing that correctly? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, I I would tell people overnight success to me doesn't exist. I'm not saying that there aren't people that do it quickly and skill fast and and you know those things happen, but even then, there's probably been a lot of groundwork put in before, you know, you only see the scale and the growth and, you know, boom, the rocket fuel, it takes off. Yeah, but yeah, definitely. This was a part-time business for almost five years for me. So you've mentioned, I think, you know, I've been in with Signature, I guess, for 15 plus years now. And probably, you know, March of 2012 is when I really made the leap full-time. So it's it's been a solid 10 years. It was about eight years until we sold the company, you know, in terms of I jumped full-time and then fast forward. Uh, it was 2020. So it was actually uh, January of 2020 when I sold the company to Stuart Title. So you're almost at eight years. So it's definitely, you know, I was fortunate in a lot of ways. Like in our business, we were very cash flow intensive and, you know, we were paying notaries. So our businesses, we had notaries across the United States and between 76 to 78% of our revenue goes right out the door to notaries. And oftentimes we would be paying them before we got paid. And so if we didn't have that slow growth, you know, I definitely would have been looking to raise capital or would have run into some challenges that I, I didn't otherwise run into. So I was pretty fortunate in that way. But totally, it was definitely slow and sort of steady, organic growth. And then we did hit sort of a peak or sort of a curve where we kind of ramped up pretty quickly over the course of two or three years. All right. So you are you're at this point. How did you find your technical co-founder? So interestingly enough, I met this company. It's called Blue Spring Solutions down in Cincinnati. And you know, at this time, the side business was becoming a lot of work. So, you know, after hours, uh, Jennifer, my mother-in-law would be scheduling these closings and like we had very limited technology. So, you know, God bless her for being able to run this business with like a Google calendar and an Excel spreadsheet. That's what she was doing. So at night though, I would come home and I would take those orders that were placed for the day in our calendar. And there might be a busy day, might've been 10 to 12 orders. I don't know, maybe something like that. And I would copy and paste, you know, the name, the file n- number, the date, the name, et cetera, throw it into QuickBooks. I would then have to send those invoices to our customers. And then I'd have to create sort of the bills to pay our notaries. And it was just, you know, it doesn't seem like it would be a lot of time, but when you're working a full-time job, you have two young kids, a young family, it was a lot. And so I was honestly about at the place where I'm like, okay, this has been great. You know, we might be, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollar revenue company. I'm making, call it $10,000 a year. And you know, which is again, as a young family, that's great, but not for, you know, if you're working 10,000 hours for $10,000. And so, you know, I was ready to say, okay, this may not be the best fit, may need to move on. And Chris had heard about this business somehow. To this day, I still really don't even know, but he's like, hey, I heard, heard about your side business. Why don't we go talk about it or whatever? Let's grab lunch. Let's go to BW3s. And so we laugh because, you know, I shared these challenges. Like basically I told him I need a calendar. I need to be able to like pay people a little bit quicker, easier. And I need to be able to like invoice our customers a little easier. And, you know, we're, we're sitting there at BW3s. He's jotting stuff down on a napkin, literally. And he says, um, yeah, I think I can build a website for you. And we kind of like look back at that and laugh like, oh, we'll build a website because, you know, he's like, I think I can solve this for you. We came to an agreement where he would grow into the business if that worked. And then if not, you know, there was no sweat off my back, no money exchanging hands, you know, so it's kind of a win-win, I think, because he had upside. I didn't have the downside. And so it really was just kind of the perfect partnership and fell into place that way. 
And we didn't even know it at the time. Like when I first met Chris, I didn't realize, but his brother Tanner and I actually lived together at Miami in a duplex. And so it was kind of a small world thing. I'm like, oh, like you're Chris Chapman. Okay, I know Tanner from Miami. So kind of an interesting way that it played out. But, you know, after Chris and I connected there, you know, pretty quickly thereafter, he built a website. That was probably like fall of 2011 sometime, 2000, yeah, 2011. And we re-released Closing Manager, I want to say in October, November of 2011. And that was sort of how we met. You know, an interesting one that I've seen is, um, I've seen this in venture-backed companies as well. What I think is a great way to do it, if you can do it, is wait till you have the business established a little bit before bringing on the CTO. And I feel the same way on the sales side as well. And the reason being, I've seen this have success is, just on the same, I look at it on the sales side, it's like you don't know necessarily who's going to be that right fit, right? Because you're like, you don't necessarily know what to automate and what not. And sometimes you bring on, let's just call it any partner. And that partner doesn't necessarily align with the same vision and the same skill set to operate the company that you're looking to operate. It sounds like, but with you at this point, you could be a lot more selective on like, hey, here's what our actual issues are. You know, is this exciting to you? Is this interesting to you? And does your skill set kind of align to pull this off? Is that correct? Yeah, I would say, you know, where I'm at today, definitely. I think I got very lucky that Chris and I both are very different, but we have complementary skill sets. And like, I mean, there's so many things that happen during, you know, between the time that I kind of connected with Chris through the acquisition itself that you know, had they not played out exactly the way they played out, you know, there'd probably be a different ending to the story. Like, who knows what we'd be doing today. But I think, you know, call it fate, call it God, whatever, you know, you believe in. I definitely think that there was a big element of that for us in this story. And, and right at the beginning, I mean, the fact that Chris and I connected and he just happened to be the right co-founder for me. He had, you know, experience in business process management. And it was kind of funny. The first company that we actually had that kind of came to us post uh what I call it, AD, after development with Chris, they reached out and they're like, hey, we've heard really good things about you from our underwriter. And I'm like, okay, like, you know, who, who's your underwriter? Like, how'd you hear about us? We're doing like a hundred orders a month. So I'm thinking, we're pretty small. And they're like, we're going to send you like a thousand orders a month. I'm like, yeah, right, sure. I've heard that before. Great. I would love it. You know, I would love it, but okay, sure. And so sure enough, they do though. And the beauty of that, I think, a, I kind of got to a point real quick in like November, December of 2011, where I was receiving emails with orders, rekeying all the data, copy and paste, whatever, calling to assign the notary, getting the emails, documents, which that's crazy that that even happened that, you know, hey, by the way, your personal financial information just got emailed through Gmail. Hopefully it didn't get hacked. <laughs> not not by us, by the way, I should clarify. Signature was not part of that. We would get the email and instantly try to clean it up. But so got to a point though, where it's like, oh my gosh, I'm doing all of this after hours, mind you, because you know the volume was so much that, you know, Jennifer was still there. I was jumping in after hours, trying to do this as well. And so thankfully Chris had background, I guess, or experience with a company called Adeptive, which they created a platform called Resware. And this company that came on board that was sending us the orders used Resware. And so we had had some prior conversations just in general about, you know, hey, we should build out some integrations, streamline this process. And, you know, this is one of those examples of those situations where I said, hey, if this didn't happen, I don't know where we'd be. We decided to integrate with Resware. We were looking at Resware and then Fidelity owned a platform called SoftPro, still does. And we chose Resware and we chose right, you know, not because we're geniuses, but because most of the larger national title companies 
started to use Resware. And so it just so happened that this first client of ours, that, you know, first national client of ours was using Resware. Chris had met them and had worked in India six or seven times. And so he knew a lot of the team that was building it out. We were both very like lean, Six Sigma business process oriented, and it just fell into place. And so we were really lucky to have that experience. But, you know, that's an example of where I think just Chris having the right background, the right connections, sort of led us to the right decision that I think we would have come to anyways, just knowing kind of what we knew about Resware and our lean mentality and theirs, but you know, there's no guarantees. And so it's just, it's funny how many of those little things happen along the way. And, you know, just pretty quickly after finding Chris that happens and, you know, sure enough, that's a big part of the growth. There's no question that first kind of real enterprise client can be a huge game changer, which I would, I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Before, before we go there, you mentioned specifically that Chris was the right partner and you'd already experienced the opposite of having a partner that did not work out right. And so when you think about that, partners are hard. Partners are really hard. Exec other members of an executive team, it takes time even there to kind of flesh out working with each other. How do we work with each other? You know, how do we help each other uh, be successful in our respective roles? But with a partner, especially if there's any kind of equity or anything involved, it makes it even harder, especially when you have a business that's already established. I mean, I, I could tell you just with myself personally, I, I think about this all the time. Like, you know, should I bring on a partner? Should I not? For you, when you think about that, I guess two questions. What led you to have the comfort level to bring on a partner after already having a, a negative experience at one point? So that's the first question. And then the the follow-up question was, what did this partner have that made this relationship work so well? You know, to answer your original question, I think I was just young enough and naive enough and stupid enough to say, <laughs> Chris seems like a good dude. We'll see how this goes. And And the reality is like, I was at a point where I think I was at that, you know, Malcolm Gladwell tipping point, right? Where I'm like, oh gosh, like I'm done with this thing. I'm about ready to just throw this in the trash. I can't do it anymore. It's too much time. It's a headache after hours. If there were issues, you know, things I would have to deal with, it just, it was a lot. And so really it was, you know, the lack of the downside risk that sort of allowed me to say, well, if this doesn't work out, <laughs> like I don't have a lot of downside risk here. Like I'm going to shut down anyway. So, hey, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So I think that helped. You know, obviously my familiarity with Tanner through Miami and knowing that Chris was connected. And then also Chris had, you know, a really good reputation at the company we were working at in terms of just being somebody that would go out and consult with businesses and improve processes. He jokes to this day that he hacks stuff together when it comes to the technology, which is fine. It works. So, you know, the hacking works. So, you know, that was kind of the original way that I found myself working with Chris. But I think the experience that he had and the focus that he had of business process, you know, one of the things I think as an entrepreneur, you know, I've read quite a few books, but like one of the, one of the better kind of book series is Traction. You know, you can get into the entrepreneur's operating system and then Rocket Fuel is sort of a, a sister book, I guess we'll call it to that book. And it talks a lot about your visionary and your integrator. And so and a lot of great companies through the years have had that, you know, look at Apple with the Steves, essentially, you have Steve Jobs, who obviously is the visionary, Steve Wozniak, you know, more of the integrator. Um, and, and there's no shortage of those types of companies that you can look at through the years. So so real quick, so just for the listeners, the, the visionary is more of that visionary CEO, they're thinking three, five years down the road, 
A lot of times they're the face of the company. They're doing a lot on the sales side, marketing side. And the integrator is kind of, you know, to put it as more of that COO type role that's actually operating and making sure the business is going. So I just want to explain that real quick if, if people aren't familiar with the terms. I'm a big believer in EOS. I think it's great, especially for, for small businesses and mid-side businesses. Yeah, absolutely. No, and thanks for taking the time to explain that. I think, you know, for us, it was like the perfect marriage of, you know, I'm definitely a visionary. I am, I tell people I am diagnosed ADHD. I know a lot of people say, oh, I'm so ADD or whatever. And, you know, I, <laughs> I'm diagnosed ADHD. And so I think in some ways that definitely lends itself to being a visionary. You know, there's some blessings, there's some curses that come along with that. But I think for me, you know, I consider it in some ways a superpower. My daughter and I talk a lot about that as well. Like, hey, it's a superpower because, you know, there's so much creativity and ideas and innovation that comes along with that. However, it's also very easy to get pulled in like a hundred different directions. And so, you know, Chris is it's very stoic in terms of like, hey, this is our laser focus. And, you know, we laughed because we had a base camp. This was back in like 2012. And I had thrown out an idea. I'm like, Chris, like, you know, hey, we got this technology. We've, we've built out some automated emails and text. And, you know, we're starting to do some creative stuff. I wonder if there's anybody that would use our tech to sort of manage this themselves. So like title companies that maybe they don't want to pay us, you know, like, for example, maybe we're charging $125 and paying the notary 100 what if they could get the notary to take a hundred and we let them do all the work we're doing, but we charge like a $5 tech fee. And, you know, we weren't that advanced in our conversations, but you know, at that point in time, Chris is like, Nope, <laughs> like we're going to laser focus. Here's what we're going <laughs> to, and to his credit, it worked out. It's funny because I kind of tease him. There's a company called SnapDocs That's our competitor that I got to know Aaron King through the industry pretty well. And they've gone and raised, you know, they went through Y Combinator, raised hundreds of millions of dollars at like a billion plus valuation, which, might be worth pennies today. I don't know what the way the market's gone. You know, I'm not sure what they're worth anymore. But you know, point point being, you know, there was definitely, I think, a market. And we eventually did build, I guess I would consider it sort of a supplemental product to what we called our closing manager. We called it Sync, that did just that. So we realized, hey, at some point, this was I think 2018, Snapdocs had come along and a couple of our customers had seen a demo. And, you know, we never, they reached out to us and said, hey, we should partner, you should use our technology. And we never really needed to because we had our own platform and we had pretty much all the automation. But then our customers saw it and were like, oh, this is pretty, pretty slick technology. And we knew we had to have an answer for it. But I think had we gone down that road in 2012, it would have been too soon and probably would have taken us off course. So I think that was really a big piece for us is, you know, I might have a million different ideas. And Chris was really good at sort of narrowing the focus and saying, okay, what are our most important what do we really need to be focused on? And I think for us, that kind of came back to what drives revenue, what improves customer experience and what cuts cost. I mean, those have been our three focuses, I would say, historically, how, how do we do those three things? And that's where we spend a lot of our time. So you got your first enterprise customer, which shot you from 100 to 1100 for, for easy numbers of monthly uh, transactions. How does that change? pretty hectic, especially before the integration. So I can remember around the holidays, working crazy hours, you know, entering these orders, scheduling closings, pretty hectic, <laughs> for lack of a better term. <laughs> I think, you know, it also opened up my eyes to the fact that, wow, there's actually a lot more business here. Because when Chris and I first sat down, you know, we said to ourselves, man, if we hit 2000 signings in a month, wow, that's, we're going to have, you know, pretty, pretty good business here. Like that would be sweet. And you know, right away we get this customer that has like a thousand orders. And even then we were kind of like, okay, like not really moving the goalposts too much. But as I look back, I mean, we definitely hit sort of an inflation period, inflationary period in terms of the number of signings uh, over the last couple of years, just because interest rates were so strong, you know, the way the economy played out. 
But I mean, we got to a point where we had over 62,000 transactions in a month coming through our system when we thought 2,000 would be good. So I think in some ways, you know, we certainly set the bar much lower than we realized. And we did continue to move the goalposts. But, you know, in the beginning, it was 2,000 signings. And then we came across a competitor here in Columbus that they were doing 8,000 signings. They were doing a lot of the Quicken Loans deals. And we kind of said, okay, like, let's, that's our next target, right? And then, you know, SnapDocs became a target because they had, you know, done so well in terms of like building out this amazing platform. We knew they had a pretty good volume. We weren't sure exactly what, but, you know, we've, we've sort of, in a healthy way, I think, used our competition to fuel, oh, wow, like maybe there is more opportunity. So I think that was an interesting piece of our journey too. It's like, we just didn't even realize how big this could be when we set out to build it. It was like, oh, this will be a cool little side business. We'll do a couple thousand orders and awesome. <laughs> and, you know, here we are however many years later. Absolutely. So you, it, the whole time that you're looking at this, it's like, okay, this is possible. Well, what else is possible? Such and such did this. Let's see if we can't do that. Well, let's see if we can't do that. And to the point where, you know, you're kind of surpassing all of them. 62,000 in a month is gigantic. That's huge. That has to be the big, is that the, was that the biggest in the country? So our estimation or what we found you know, we've had several conversations with companies that have some data. We believe, you know, we call ourselves a signing service. That's sort of the, lang the language or the, the jargon in our industry for what we are. We do think we were the largest signing service. And then the largest platform would have been probably SnapDocs. So between ourselves and SnapDocs, we kind of consider ourselves probably the, the two largest guess, uh, providers of what we do. That's such a great story. So did you make the decision that you wanted to exit or did it organically happen? It definitely organically happened. You know, we had a little bit of inbound interest. Actually, the first time we tried to, I guess, quote unquote, sell the company, we did want to exit because it got to the point where Chris and I were like, oh man, this has become so much. So believe it or not, we actually uh, tried to exit. I want to say it was like 2013, maybe. We had a customer that was one of our larger customers. We basically said, hey, you know, if you get, you know, pay us 100K, you can take the business and we'll move on. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was worth more than that. Um, but we were just so frustrated with where things were because dealing with 1099 notaries, you know, you run into a situation where it's pretty stressful. The cash flow is stressful. There's thousands of dollars on the line for every transaction. So the comparison I give people is like, hey, if Amazon messes your package up, okay, you know, you'll get a replacement. You'll be a little upset or whatever. But, you know, worst comes to worst, let's say I don't even replace it. You're out 20 bucks. Like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. But, you know, ultimately, if you're out a $5,000 commission as a real estate agent or, you don't get the keys to your house because the notary missed a signature or didn't scan the docs in in time. Like that's stressful. And that would all percolate up to me essentially. And so I was like, man, I'm ready to kind of just, I don't deal with this anymore. It's too stressful. And so that was our first conversation. Um, thankfully they said no. And so we kind of had to solve those issues in another way, which, which we did over time, but I won't lie. I mean, it's definitely a business that's stressful in dealing with independent contractors that at, at a moment's notice. At that scale. Yeah. And if they mess up, you know, it falls back on us, no matter how well we vet them or, you know, we can't be at the closing with them, obviously. And so it creates some challenges, but kind of the most, I guess, realistic scenario where, you know, kind of came to us, we had a company that reached out to us that was interested in acquiring us. And this must've been maybe 2018. We flew into Charlotte. They basically, they were owned by big PE firm. I think one of the largest in the world, actually. And they said, you know, we'd like to do some type of creative sort of like sign and bring you guys on sort of scenario because, you know, this PE firm, they spend a million dollars on due diligence, like at minimum, but you're under the threshold where we could sort of do a creative structure. You know, we can buy you guys out. Well, we actually grew between that time over the next couple of months to the point where they said, 
you know, shoot, you're too big now. We can't do that. And you're not big enough. So we're not going to do a billion dollars of due diligence because, you know, it's like we're going to lose money. It's not, it's not worth our time. And I said, okay, I get it. Um, so that fell apart. Then we had another company, actually, this, this worked out pretty well. Um, there was a PE firm in Philadelphia that they reached out on behalf of their client. And they were looking at us as a possible complement to a remote online notary platform. So for those that aren't familiar, you know, most real estate transactions today are happening pen and paper. Notary shows up with like 200 pages to your house and is like, hey, let's sign every one of these or initial every one of these. You know, it's, it's kind of archaic. But we're moving in a direction now where a lot of states or most states, it's legal to do an electronic signing, not only electronically, but even like, you know, we have this video going here. This is very similar to what electronic closing experience would be where on the side of the screen, you're in the middle of the screen, there might be our pages. I, I as the notary can walk you through it. And so they were thinking we would be a complement with our notary network to kind of a platform they were looking to build. They were representing a company that had a vault essentially on the back end. So like when you have these real estate closings, the note or you know basically the loan gets packaged up and then resold to an investor. So you hear about like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, all these investors. And in order to you know validate that it's a legit note, there's no fraud, the vault is sort of what takes care of that. So they had that technology. The PE firm was representing them as a portfolio company. And kind of an interesting story there. They looked at us and they kind of tabled it because they said, well, we don't really know what we want to do from a remote online notary perspective. But the other thing we ran into, I mentioned earlier, like 76 to 78% of what we pay out to notary or to, I'm sorry, 76 to 78% of our revenue gets paid out right away to notary. So when they started to look at us, I think at that point, maybe we were roughly, I'm going to say 12 million in annual revenue. And so, you know, if you think about that, they would say, well, you know, your margin is terrible. If we look at it from the perspective of 78% going right out the door. And then of course we have our staff, our tech, everything else underneath that is operating expenses. So, you know, that's not so good. And if we look at you as what we call net revenue, then, you know, that starts to get like your net revenue is just not big enough, you know, and that, the net revenue would be, you know, like, let's say the 12 million minus 9 million, 75%, starting at 3 million, they're like, your margin looks great, but your net revenue is just not big enough really to move the needle for us in terms of this portfolio and what we're trying to build out. So those were the initial conversations, you know, kind of 2018, 2019. It wasn't until about July of 20 that we started to get a lot more inbound interest from some of these companies in terms of, Actually, I'm sorry, July of 19, and we started to get a lot more inbound interest from companies that had a, I guess, more sincere interest in maybe acquiring us. And then you sold the company to to Stewart Title. And how's life changed since then? You know, obviously going through a transaction like like that was very meaningful personally. You know, it's opened up some opportunities for us to do some of the things in terms of investing and, and trying to give back and you know, create, I guess, in my mind, I'm at a point where I'd love to create as much good as I can for as many people. That's sort of what I'm falling back on as kind of my goal. And that involves working with others that, you know, are in businesses. I'm, I'm doing a little bit of advisory with startups and things that I know and that I've experienced and really just trying to work with, with others to kind of go through a similar process. So I learned a ton, you know, was obviously a meaningful opportunity for us personally as a family and as a company. I think it was really a win because, you know, at that point we were starting to think about exploring like 401k and, you know, we'd never really gone down that road. We'd thought about it. Most of my people were like, Hey, I'd rather just get paid more. So we just did that. But I think going to a company like Stewart, the benefit package is obviously incredible. They're, they're publicly traded. Um, so that, that was all great. And, you know, my role changed a lot within probably six months. The first few months, there wasn't a lot of change. You know, they, they did tell us, 
we're going to leave you alone. We want you to be autonomous. I was excited that Stuart was the the acquirer. Some of the companies that we were talking to were more tech focused. And so I, I think that could have been okay. But, you know, one of them, I think, had 120 developers. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Like, what's your infrastructure for like, my account's receivable, my account's payable, you know, like, like the millions of dollars we're paying out. And the headache that that is, I'd love for somebody to take it off my plate. Well, they didn't really have any offering there. It was like, I was going to continue to do that and all these additional roles. And I'm like, that's not going to work. So with Stuart, it was it was really nice because they are a large company. I think there are 8,000 employees now post additional acquisitions. And, you know, there's centralized offices for accounts receivable, accounts payable, HR, benefits, you know, just all of these things that I used to be doing, I'm no longer doing. And so that has been a great weight lifted off my shoulders, as well as, you know, not having to, to look at oh my gosh, we have to pay these notaries, you know, millions of dollars, basically managing that cash flow. You know, Stuart, I think had at the time that they acquired us $500 million in the bank. So it was like, that's not going to be a problem. They're good. And so, you know, that lack of stress has been great. I think if you ask my family, they would say there's definitely a difference there in terms of just not carrying quite as heavy of a weight, but it has been interesting too. Like we've been able to build out, I think an interesting product, it's called remote choice where, Stuart acquired Notary Cam and then our company, and I didn't know it. I actually reached out to Stuart because we had inbound interest from some other companies. And I said, you know, hey, if you have an interest, I'd love to have a conversation because we're getting inbound interest. We're not really out there on the market trying to sell, but, you know, could be a good partnership and ended up obviously working out. But I did not know they were acquiring Notary Cam at the same time. And we've been able to kind of blend those offerings together to have a product to bring to market that, you know, I've had a little bit of involvement with, which has been fun as well. So, Definitely a lot of changes, but I think for the most part, I would say it's been a positive experience. I love it. Well, perfect. So one of the things we always end on is just what kind of advice would you give your younger self? If you could do it all over again, you could speak to that person again, what would you say to them? That's a good question. Well, <laughs> gosh, I've experienced and learned so much. I would say, you know, trust in your gut for one, in terms of like, if you know something to be right, follow it. The other thing is, I think surrounding yourself with people that are like-minded and also push you to be better is important. And that's one thing I think I've gotten better at as I've gotten older in terms of building out a circle of people or relationships with people that, you know, I prefer to spend my time with people that are making me better. And I'm not perfect at that. I don't think anybody is. But for me, it's definitely helped narrow the focus on who and where and what I want to be spending my time on. So that would be definitely a focus. I think, you know, as a younger person, it's easy to be spread in a lot of different directions. And now I feel like I have a pretty clear understanding of, you know, who and what are most important to me. It's so true. Everybody, it, it's one thing that I, I, I try to talk about quite a bit as well. It's that everybody's going to have an opinion on what you should do. And, and everybody's looking at that from the lens of what they've done, their experiences, positive and negative where so much of it I had to learn as I got older uh, is just, you got to follow your gut. You got to do what gives you energy, right? Everyone's like, you you could, there's a zillion ways to make money, do it, do what you, do what you enjoy doing and follow your gut on that. I love that. I think that's excellent advice and having that kind of challenge network, if you will, as well is awesome. Mark, I, I appreciate taking the time. This was a fun conversation to to kind of dive into to your career. I'm really excited to see kind of what comes next for you because, uh, you know, I see you running around all the time and all these things that you got going on. I love it. So thank you for uh, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And actually, the last thing you mentioned reminded me of Jim Collins. If you've heard of like his hedgehog that he talks about, it's really interesting. But you mentioned, you know, I, and I think that's really good advice as well that I would probably share with my younger self. So since you touched on it, 
you know, where do your passion, your skill set, and then what people are willing to pay pay for intersect? Because, you know, you can be really passionate and really good at something, but, you know, if it's like building Lego castles, maybe people would pay you for that. It's probably not a good example, but, you know, there, there may be things out there that, you know, I'm really passionate about whatever and i'm good at it but people aren't willing to pay or you know likewise maybe um you know i'm really skillful and i'm able to get paid i'm not passionate you know finding that intersection is huge so you know that's the advice that i think i would take away uh in terms of giving it to to my younger self as well so but yeah thanks for having me cal this has been great i really appreciate you taking the time as well and uh yeah i'm excited to see what's next for me as well as for you seems like things are going well for you too so that's exciting well, I, I appreciate that. And yeah, and, and, and obviously we'll have some coffees over, over all of that as well. So awesome. I love it, Mark. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me.